0: Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Mark Jacobson, who is uh a... writer and journalist and author of the 2018 book Pale Horse Rider William Cooper The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America which will be our subject today and it is one of my favorite books of the last several years and I've actually oh, really? even brought it up on on previous episodes of this podcast a few times so um yeah, I, so I, knew, case... I knew there must
1: be somebody out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so actually, before we started recording, you said um, you you can't wait for this conspiracy stuff to go away. So I was curious what you meant by that. And um, you well,
1: it's—I mean, uh, you know what it is. It's like I actually am a conspiracy. I like conspiracies. I think they're great. Um, but. And uh, I like thinking that way because I like thinking, um, I mean, I'm 73 years old, so I grew up before they actually had conspiracy theories, even though there was all kinds of conspiracy, conspiratorial stuff going on, you know, obviously, uh, you know once they have the OSS and the CIA and the MK Ultras and everything else like that, there's plenty of conspiracies around. It's just that people didn't know about them yeah. and uh, they didn't think about them as necessarily in that bellywig of conspiracy. So um, it was a different thing, but it's, you know, like there was no way that you could be a thinking human being um, growing up in the 19. 19- coming of age in the 1960s, unless you had some kind of theory about what really happened to John F. Kennedy, you know? So, um, and uh, those uh, things are just part of my intellectual, you know, development and stuff like that. But I find, uh, as, apropos to your question, when I said that, I feel like, um, you know, there's like, conspiracy is like anything else. There's There's good conspiracy and bad conspiracy. <laughs> It's like, you know, there's good comic books, bad comic books, good everything, you know, and, um, you know, whatever. Um, good religions, not so good religions. But um, the, uh, the, the use of the, the cynical use of uh, what used to be called independent research
0: yeah.
1: is, is just appalling to me. <laughs> and i also feel it's like it's not honest it's not really there's no real investigation going on it's just repeating this uh usually you know more than i mean one thing that's great about conspiracies is like you can go as far as you can go with a kind of theory like any kind of theory until you get to that point where you disprove your own theory because it just doesn't make sense yeah (laughs) but if you continue to believe it at that point where you've already proven it to yourself that it doesn't really work, that's just, to me, I mean, I, I find that to be intellectually repellent. I find yeah. that to be insulting, you know, that people can continue to believe things they know are not true. So, um, you know, uh, and it's not a, the same thing. I mean, I I'm all for people of faith. I mean, you know, you have faith. That X, Y, and Z happened 2,000 years ago, and you want to believe in that, I'm all for you. Whatever floats your boat is good. But when it's used for, like, really kind of idiotic, you know, uh, political rationale and also self-reification of, like, the fact that I'm a, a truth seeker. You know, yeah. or something like that, when actually all you're doing is sticking your head in the sand in some kind of really narrow view. I mean, I find people that they're supposedly truth seekers. And really, they're I mean, they're just repeating the John Birch Society program from 1952. I mean, you know, it's not there's nothing new in what they're, they're saying, most of these people. And, um, you know, it gets a little tiresome. That's really the main thing. It's tiresome because there's not any new ideas out there that the that the people that i mean if it was interesting and there was actually something new and something like an, an interesting idea I, I mean i'm all for it you know yeah. and um and at the trump period of time has <laughs> been a disaster for conspiracies,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, I recently wrote something about the red pill metaphor and I think it, it sort of converges somewhat with what you're pointing out here in that, you know, that there's a way that the, this process of red pilling as it's described has become sort of routinized and it's not, um, you know, it, it doesn't all, basically what it means is plugging into certain media channels or those who claim to be in some way red pilled or, or, um, you know outside of the the establishment uh, consensus out to, out to are, are, I mean, are essentially know, a, a kind of uh you, you
1: know, know
0: they're they're basically just um plugging into a particular set of media channels that define themselves that way but um the the process uh, does not really require it's a, it's any
1: a, it's a hopeless it's a it's yeah. a fool's mess ma- fool's man i think yeah. you know because i mean uh there are so many orthodoxies yeah. in these supposed, um, you know, free thinkers.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, there's a good reason why, um, you know, the people that, that are obsessed about secret societies hate the, Meso- the, the, uh, the, free, the Freemasons because they were Freemasons. They were free thinkers. They were, like, against the church. You know, I mean, if you ever really look at the actual, I mean, like, you know, I'm sure that they're terrible and they're plotting to do all this horrible stuff. Those old guys, you know, at the, at the Masonic Hall, you see they're drinking coffee and barely. <laughs> those are the enemy, right? So, like, um, the uh, that kind of stuff, it, it's like, you know, I, I feel a lot of it is kind of, um, and I'm not trying to put people down. I mean, I wrote this whole book. And I, I had to actually um feel that William Cooper had something on, on, on his mind that was intelligent to write a whole book about him. So like uh so don't don't get me wrong, but um uh, it's just I feel there's a lot of kind of delayed teenage rebellion about <laughs> about a lot of this stuff. That like, you know, well um you know, you grown-ups, you know, even though you're fifty years old, you're sitting there in your underwear on the internet. Need you grown-ups that think this. Well, I'm gonna think something else, you know. And what are you gonna think? You're gonna think that, um, I mean, the only to me, the only interesting thing that's come along since the Trump stuff started was Q. Q's pretty interesting. But not for the reasons why most people think he's interesting, I don't think. I mean, the thing that's interesting about Q is um, he's well he or what or whatever whatever the algorithm that produces QAnon um uh and believes that there's going to be like a uh, go through all these tribulations following the book of revelations basically almost exactly but but most people they're so excited about the book of revelations because of all those kind of scary images in there that like they love you know all those horror movie things you know like when like you know the cups are opening and the fire is doing all, I mean, all this stuff that like has been in every single movie forever. Um, they never get to the end where actually, you know, things begin again. So there's a cycle that's basically it. So, you know, there's a good reason why the book of revelations has been in and out of the Bible you know numerous times some popes put it in other popes threw it out um because it's controversial kind of thing and it's basically about i think those in power don't like the book of revelations okay so the people because it's about change so i mean i'd be willing to bet that most people who are bible readers really have only read the book of revelations <laughs> Or at least the first couple of chapters, you know, up to the point where the Behold the Pale Horse comes up. You know, after that they feel like, okay, I got my, I got my rock, so if I'm going to go on to the next thing, but um, you know, so you got this kind of situation where there's not any new thinking going on. So you you, you need you need you need new thinking to create a movement that's going to attract somebody beyond just this core group who are like, um, you know that. But Bill Cooper's main thing was like, do your own research. Okay, we'll do our own research. Does that, what does that mean? Does that mean, oh, look at the websites that you already agree with, and then you say, I did my research. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, that phrase, do your own research, has really been, along with many other Bill Cooper phrases, like wake up sheeple and stuff like that, have just been kind of like inculcated into the uh, mainstream culture. But it's not, it's not, um, I mean, for instance, like, people, I don't know, do you, you, know, do you, you know where drink the Kool-Aid comes from, that phrase?
0: Uh, Jim Jones.
1: Yeah, Jim Jones. Yeah. You got to think yeah. about it, right? So, yeah. Guys, yeah, most people don't know where that phrase comes from, <laughs> but they know what it means, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and there's yeah. a lot of Bill Cooper stuff like that. Yes. So, um,
0: yeah.
1: so yeah. So, the thing is, that like, yeah, I mean, it's been disappointing because I thought that um, conspiracy at least as practiced by people that were actually kind of had a good sense of humor, <laughs> you know, um, would lead to some uh, some interesting thinking that might actually change things a little bit because clearly, you know, all the things that people are complaining about are true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, the stuff they're complaining about is true, but what, why it is the way it is or what to do about it. That's a whole different story, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know, you know, it's. Uh, so, so for the, feelings yeah, about yeah. the whole thing, i really want to know.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, for the benefit of my uh, listeners who maybe aren't apprised to, I mean, are, are probably familiar with, many of the things that Cooper brought into the culture to some Mm. degree or other, but, but perhaps not with him. Um, Uh, Could you briefly just introduce him as a a figure and explain why he was, uh, you know, significant enough to write a book about?
1: Well, I mean, to me being, being my age, Bill Cooper and I are almost the same would be the same age if he was still alive. I mean, he's a few years older than me, but, um, I mean, he was somebody who uh, grew up in the American system of of uh, you know pre World War II, pre atom bomb system of American, bought into the you know all the John Wayne things and stuff like that. So, um, and he was comes from a military family, which every single person in his family, all oh, males of his family, had were officers. Now, there's a good reason why Bill Cooper, I mean, was never an officer, because I don't think that he was ever going to make it as an officer. He's just too, you know, he had a lot of, I think he probably had some prob He had a lot of problems with his father early on, who was a, was a what they call a light colonel, lieutenant colonel, and uh, in, the, in the Air Force. And um, Cooper had this big manhood thing. But uh, you know what? What he basically did was use his um, prodigious intelligence and um, a kind of sense of uh, he was more like a beatnik than anything else. Which people, I mean, if you told Bill Cooper readers that that, that their hero was a beatnik, I mean, they go out of their minds, you know, because they would, probably wouldn't even know what a beatnik was. But um, you know. Uh, I mean, he was a big jazz fan. He played the trumpet. He loved Louis Armstrong. He was a reader of all these science fiction books. I mean, he was a hippie in a lot of ways, but he did have this military thing. And then when he went to Vietnam, he was desperate to fight in Vietnam and have combat. He was originally in the Navy, but he couldn't go in the Navy because he got seasick. It's like a story of Bill Cooper's life. He he's, he grows up all his life wanting to be in the navy, and then he can't go in the navy because he gets seasick. <laughs> so you know, so then he joined the army, and then um, and he was, uh, but then eventually became no he joined the air force, where he had these really kind of like intimate experiences with apocalypse. I mean, according to him, and almost everything is according to him. You know, it's like. I mean, I I, I wrote the story uh, uh, that the movie American Gangster was based on. So, in my, I found the guy, Frank Lucas, and I mean, he told me a fantastic amount of wild stories, which, you know, sounded like maybe there was a, some degree of embroidery going on. So, so, you always have to write, like, well, Frank claims, you know, and then see what he says to say. So, Bill Cooper is a little in that bag. And, um, so he's inventing his life for himself and he uh after he actually goes back into the navy after being in the air force because when he was in the air force he claims that he was working on these atomic bombs so and doing whatever maintenance he can do on an atomic bomb i don't exactly know what he did but the idea of somebody who was that close to total annihilation I think that that was a part of his character. And um then when he became then when he went to Vietnam as a as a Navy patrol captain, you know, there was some um uh, it's hard to say exactly what happened, but the military records are all there that he did do that. And he was um and then later on after his uh he was he was a he was on this Qua Viet River, which is about ten miles south. Of the DMZ, if you know what I'm talking about, that was the, the between North Vietnam and South Vietnam, and um, there was bombing. I mean, the NVA, the 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 uh, the Vietnamese Army, uh, not the be not the VC, which were the guerrillas in South, South 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 Vietnam. They were sending these uh, 122 uh, millimeter missiles over on 24 hour basis into the into the camp. I mean, it must have been the amount of terror that was um uh, that you had to like just put up with on a daily basis was huge and um, there's no doubt that bill cooper was a seriously ptsd person by the time he got out of the army uh, out of the navy and um you know he was um, so he was to me that kind of person who had lived through these events that i did you know and, and then turned out to have this He had a message that he wanted to get out and really did think of himself as a messenger. And how much of this was just a showbiz idea, you know, and how much of it he really believed is uh, you'd have to ask him and you're not going to be able to. (laughs) you did. So like, uh, you know, and, you know, he started up with these uh, radio shows and he because he after like a long time, the war is over in 1975 he doesn't really surface publicly as a spokesman until the late 1980s, in which he becomes rapidly uh, one of the most foremost spokesmen on the UFO thing. And he's got all kinds of naval documents, you know, because naval intelligence is the top. That's the top. So he's got all these documents saying that, uh, you know, all these suppressed sightings and kind of stuff like that. And all these, you know, he can look at most of it in that one of the chapters of Behold the Pale Horse. Um, and he gives this fantastic, really fantastic, you can still find it on the internet, in the, uh, internet speech at the um, MUFON convention in 1989, I think. And he becomes a super controversial figure because he doesn't have any proof, and he's got this fantastic... Uh, sighting story about how when he was on a submarine they they surfaced and they saw this ufo gigantic ufo came in and it went underneath the water and it came up and you know all kinds of stuff you know which is and he's got these people that claim that they saw the same thing although nobody ever heard from them but uh so you got this guy who's like suddenly kind of like bullies his way into this field where it's very territorial i mean i don't know if you know much about the ufo stuff but i mean there is there are these typical spokesmen like you know what was the name of these people i don't know you know there was uh, linda linda um i'm sorry the names of these people are, are, are escaped me now but there was like a, a circuit of people who wrote these books about ufos and they all were trying to you know like how many times you were on coast to coast was a big deal (laughs) you know so cooper comes around and he's like you know he's he's smarter and funnier and more passionate than all these other people and he's like taking space away from their um thing And, and he's roundly hated because he's not a nice guy and um and he's not even trying to be a nice guy so and then at a certain point he decides the, the UFO stuff is all baloney. That's just a distraction, you know, to keep you from really knowing what's really going on. And then, um, then he turns to in, in 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 various modes. He changes to the idea of the secret society stuff, and he knows everything about. You know, he reads a few books, and he knows everything about, um, you know, Freemasons and Knights Templar and this kind of stuff, and does his. He eventually did produce this series, Mystery Babylon, on his radio show called, which was called The Hour of the Time, which is very entertaining. <laughs> I got to say, one of the things that really attracted me to Bill Cooper was his analysis of the of the, uh, his retelling of the Garden of Eden myth. It was brilliant. I mean, I think that this guy, I said, man, this guy is a really kind of interesting fellow because his thing is like he takes the garden of eden myth which is the story of good and evil more or less and and also the idea of uh and he transposes that into the beginning sequence of 2001 (laughs) which is fantastic you know and instead of the tree you've got the monolith you know taking that place and then he's also doing this kind of like um, when the when the monkey touches the, the monolith and suddenly gets smart, that's that's this kind of idea of of the human of the human species separating itself from the rest of the animal world, you know. So, and uh, he and he had all kinds of really kind of pretty sharp uh, and ab- observations about this, and it showed it kind of somebody who was um, taking these mythic stories. And updating them into an into a modern context, which I found to be interesting. <laughs> so, uh, and then you know, the more I found out about him and his life story, and he had like 17 wives and like, you know, uh, and the way he, and all that stuff about how he died, which we can talk about if you want. But, um, you know, it set him up as this kind of uh, brilliant person that became he He understood conspiracy and how an alternative thinking better than any of these other guys i mean it was you know Bill couldn't like compare him to somebody like David Pike or something like that or one of these like you know four flushers so like uh the uh yeah, I mean, I like this reptilian thing. It works a little bit as a metaphor, you know, for a while, you know. But I mean, once you start getting actually believing it beyond a metaphor, I mean, you got to, you know, you're in some serious factual trouble. Which seems to not bother people these days, but you know, bothers me. As I mean, as a as somebody who was a journalist for fifty years, I mean, if it's patently untrue, that's something that harshes my mellow, you know. So, so uh, anyhow. Uh,
0: so he um, so he writes this book, Behold a Pale Horse, going back to the Revelation Yeah, going um, back references to earlier. It. And he is also known forever, for this, so you can ask
1: me questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, he's also known for this radio program. The hour of the time, which runs approximately through the 90s. Right. It's
1: uh, well, well, it runs. Well, actually, to, to go back the early 90s little, to it started in 1992 yeah. and it ends. The 90s, the 90s killed.
0: Right. Exactly. He
1: did, a, he did a show the night he killed. He was killed. Although my confidant, Mister Doyle Shamley, who was his kind of sort of right hand man, you know, who accepted me as a as a as the person that would you know be Bill Cooper's Boswell. Still don't understand why Doyle did that, but <laughs> but he, we got along fine because we were both fans of Gigi Allen. <laughs> That's really why. That's really why we got along. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, you know, you just can't. You know, just it's like, it's like you know when you're a journalist, you know, you feel like how can I connect with this guy? And I don't know, Gigi Allen did it. So, <laughs> so um, I hope your listeners know G. G. Allen, yeah. but um, they probably do actually. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so uh, in any event, the thing about Cooper, which I, I like to go back to, the Behold the Behold the pale horse. He wrote this book. It was basically to separate himself from all the UFO people because now he was going to be doing something else. And those people were just a bunch of boobs who had been, you know, uh, you know, bought the drank the Kool-Aid on on the UFO thing, which is really all a bunch of baloney. And his his rationale for why he knew this was so arcane and kind of like out of the blue, because he found this speech that was made by. uh, John Dewey, the famous American pragmatist (laughs) philosopher in 1917, saying that, like, you know, wouldn't it be great if there were aliens from outer space, like in the H.G. Wells' story, The War of the Worlds, because then everybody would get together. So Cooper, being a natural paranoid, he immediately takes the message of that to say that, well, that's really what, and that's what Reagan said. It's almost exactly word for word. So... um, about the ufos and how people would get together right so um so once once cooper uh, began to go off that's the, he was looking for another kind of one thing about conspiracy theories is you need, you're always looking for one thing that explains everything <laughs> that's that's the holy grail that one thing that's going to explain every other thing that ever happened which is um kind of this battle of uh it's an anti-evolutionary idea, which is like, you know, it, you know, you could trace back the creationist idea and the, and the, and the evolutionary idea, which is really a lot of what's going on in the political stance now. I mean, I think, I mean, it's, you know, if you read the New York times, you would never ever begin to think that these people have actually a point of view. They're just a bunch of crazy people, you know, but actually that's not true at all. So like, um, that's why I, um, Read the New York Times with a grain of salt. <laughs> but, but anyhow, to go back to the, the thing that was interesting about Behold a Pale Horse was, which got my attention, was that it was picked up by all these black people. That was really what did it. I mean, the first time I ever saw anybody reading Behold a Pale Horse was it was O.D.B., yeah, old dirty bastard who I'd done a story about once, you know, when they first came around, when they first started to come around and he lived, his mother lived near me. So I'm walking down the street and I see, uh, I see <laughs> it's him. You know sitting there, We're sitting on the steps across the street from Barnes and Nobles, which was a book a bookstore. This book was never sold on the shelves after a certain period of time, because it was so, it was the most shoplifted book, in the history of Barnes & Noble, because because it was considered to be this Bible that you had to know this information. And there was all this urban legendary about this thing. i like, don't ever buy that book with a credit card. Because then they're going to get all your information, and they're going to track you, you know, which doesn't sound that crazy now, even though it probably is. Um, but then it was like, what? <laughs> really? I mean, like this is back 30 years ago. I mean, people were not thinking that way necessarily but then so then behold the pale horse became probably the most one of the most read books in the new york city new york state prison system and it was uh you know that and another book called the 48 laws of power by robert green these were two books that people in prison always read and i began to think about it and 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 if you look, there's very few rappers of any renown that have not name checked Bill Cooper at one point or another. Right. In fact, there's a there's a rapper who's a good friend of mine now whose name is William Cooper. He took his name and he's done done very well, you know, so like um, so this is a lot of cultural kind of stuff that just got me into him. But um, the uh, his ability to. uh, To just. He was the thing that was good about him was he was first of all he was not a racist not not racist that's if you're racist you know it's it's hard to put up with that kind of stuff but um he wasn't that way he had a point of view he expressed the angry man kind of thing and uh, and uh, he was he was he and he got gradually more and more isolated. Because he did the his original radio show was on um, a Christian broadcasting. I can't remember the name of the call letters, but it was the biggest single shortwave radio system in the, in the world, I think. And then he, typically enough, got into a big fight with them, you know, about something. So they threw him off. And, uh, and then he was, became an itinerary kind of like, you know, radio preacher type person. And he was always looking for a new hookup. And then he was on shortwave for a long time. And um, so the thing about Cooper's broadcast on shortwave, because Cooper was, a, if you've ever listened to him, he's a fantastic radio performer. I mean, he's got a great voice. He's just a natural. I mean, he's as good as anybody that I've ever heard. And, um, and he, but if you're listening to him on shortwave radio, that means that you can't get it all the time. It isn't like pushing the button in your car and it comes up like on, you know, Sirius XM or something like that. This is like, you know, you could, if the sunspots are going in a certain direction or there's clouds, the shortwave signal is not going to come to your house and you're not going to be able to hear Bill Cooper that night. So you have to be ready to hear Bill Cooper and you have to accept that you might not hear him. There's some kind of religious version. You know, it's not You are not in control. You know, there's something else going on that is bringing the voice of Bill Cooper to you. And there's a religious experience in that, which I think is one of the reasons why he got to be so trusted in a lot of ways. And so because, you know, it was just out in the ether, the voice of Bill Cooper. So,
0: yeah, and I I like thinking about the evolution of conspiracy theory, paranoia, what, what have you, in terms of the evolution of media. And, um, you know, it kind of also goes back to what you, were, what you were discussing right at the beginning. But, you know, when we look at his career, it sort of takes place through, on one hand, print, but, you know, particularly this book that circulates in this kind of semi-contraband way, um, yeah, book, shoplifting and passing around in prisons and so on. And then on the other hand, through shortwave radio, so, you know, we have a and then also that he's attending at least early on. He's like attending these conventions right in these kind yeah. of UFO gatherings. And that's, um, was that's another that's another kind of um,
1: well, he was so happening. off the grid. He was so yeah. anti-corporate. I mean, he's like, you know, he's just the most I mean, Alex Jones. You know, he's a talented radio guy, but I mean he's a corporate guy, you know, you know, he's just selling something else. But Bill Cooper is not selling anything. <laughs> you know, he's just he's just like, you know, he's not like, he wasn't really selling anything. The only products he ever had on is that he was actually he wasn't selling a full line of like, you know, phony vitamin supplements or something right. like that. The only thing that he only sponsors he ever had were those typical right wing uh you know, gold coins thing or something like that, you know, whatever it was, you know, the typical right wing kind of sponsor off the off the grid sponsor. But, um, you know, the, his, his lack of corporate and his disgust with those people was very redeeming for him to me. Anyhow.
0: Yeah. So, and it, I mean, and uh, I think it also, you know, something I find, um, you know, with these recent discussions about, uh, you know, conspiracy theories spreading online and sort of misinformation and all that is, um, you know, it's often discussed as if there's sort of, uh, you know, as if people think that, you know, these things didn't circulate in other modes before the internet or that. So it's kind of interesting to just look at how his ideas um, circulated and spread through these previous sort of information channels and systems.
1: No, that's true. Um, That's actually, that's definitely true
0: and and i and I, do, I do think one thing that happens is there's sort of a lower you know that i think as you were sort of suggesting there was a kind of higher bar to entry both both on the sort of production end and on the consumption end that there was sort of a you know in in his time um you know, you, you you kind of had to uh you know it it was harder to get your ideas out there on one
1: hand well and, i mean so- the thing is it it wasn't it wasn't so institutionalized like it is now. I mean, you know, like, I mean, I never thought I'd ever feel this way, but I mean, where is Walter Cronkite when you really need him? I mean, it's like, I mean, I don't watch the news at all anymore because it's just, you know, I used to always think that Bill O'Reilly, like, you know, they say, hey, he goes see B- Bill O'Reilly, say, hey, Bill, if I if I if I raise your salary an extra million, will you go left? You know, they're like, oh, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just—I mean, it's just showbiz figures. But, you know, it's like this kind of propaganda as entertainment, and um, and the internet is—you know—the main cog in that. You know, once you got to the place where you could—you ne- never had to listen to anything that you didn't believe in before, then then you're like in a kind of strange place. You know, and when they're talking about like. Uh, just the natural level of uh, discourse, you know? It, nobody can talk to him. You can't even talk. My son won't get vaccinated, right? What am I supposed to say? What, what, he's 31 years old. I was supposed to say, you get vaccinated or oh, I'm going to come out there <laughs> well, you know. I mean, it's just a, like, I said, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, wh- what's the point? I mean, you know, but um, anyhow, that's, that's another thing. But I mean, you do get these kind of like, different different ways of making decisions, basically based on information that's picked up on the internet, which is picked up over and over and over again, you know, reprinted. It's almost like if you read, um, for instance, and in, you're a writing teacher, you know, like, for instance, back, back not very long ago, almost every single newspaper of any note had their own book reviewer. Now there's maybe two or three book reviewers in the whole country it seems like and they and they just reprint those, those reviews over and over and over again. so that becomes the dominant position on this poor this poor schmuck wrote this book you know worked on it for a long time and if one or two of these reviewers don't like it i mean you're just finished you know (laughs) so and that's a a dispiriting thing but cooper is from this other period you know where you can actually have a minority position you know super minority and and you know you can eventually pick up a following Because, I mean, I I don't think that any of these people that run around like, you know, quoting Bill Cooper as the great father of the truth truth movement, um, probably. I mean, I doubt that he that he would have been a Trumper. I just don't see that. I mean, he's not that kind of person. Yeah, And I
0: mean, well, you know, it's (laughs) it's interesting. Um, In fact, there's a weird there's a passage in in your book where you uh, you're talking about the Y2K and it's kind of where where Cooper and Alex Jones, um, you know, I, I mean, Cooper was antagonistic to, to well, Jones, right? And, and know, so he and so, yeah. hated
1: the guy because he had bigger ratings. Yeah. You know? but, right. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's on that level as well, you know, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. But but Jones is, I mean, there's an interesting thing that, uh, you know, where Jones is kind of um, sounding the alarm about Y2K and he's actually, uh, a, you know, an interesting kind of flip in in Jones's position is uh, in that he's actually like um, presenting Vladimir Putin as the the sort of mastermind of Y2K. And Uh uh, this is kind of fascinating because he actually, you know, because Jones basically became a kind of Trump um, propagandist, he also became a huge booster of Putin, actually, in his later career. Well, I mean, I don't know.
1: This, this, uh, well, I think, you know, there's a, this business about the the end of democracy is not a joke. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know that that might be a good thing, but uh, (laughs) I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, the only thing I, the only thing I I am in favor of is the first amendment. I'm a, I'm a absolutist. I mean, you know, you know, but uh, you know, the idea that uh, these authority figure kind of people um, supporting authority figures, and, and 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 usurping the uh, the national the national uh, the, f- I mean I never understood like why these morons on the left would always see uh, ac- the American flag to the right. Why would you do that? It just seems stupid. You know, it just seems like an idiotic kind of elite, typically elitist strategy that has made everybody hate these people. So um, and Bill Cooper was one of the first people to really point out that. These fucking snobs who think, excuse me, that I uh, think that I'm not as smart as them are going to get another thing coming, you know, that. And there used to be this. you Remember a movie called Diner? Yeah. And it was a. there was Kevin Bacon was in it and he's watching the College Bowl on TV. Right. And he knows all the answers and all these guys from Yale and stuff like that. They don't know. And he's laughing at me. <laughs> you know, Bill Cooper was a little like that. I mean, he knew the answers. You know, he read, did, he actually did his own research and actually read a few books, you know, as opposed to most people. And um, he had a, a certain um, sense of his own entitlement because he really was an autodidact. You know, I mean, what, what do your own research is, is supposed to be creating autodidacts, which means that people are just. I hate school. I didn't do good in it anyhow, but I'm still a smart guy, which is the case in a lot of people. You know, not every one of the great things, is, you know, the tyranny of schooling and education system for people that are really uh, don't fit into that model. Um, that's something that finally is actually being dealt with. I think, you know, people there there is some movement towards, you know. Well, I didn't do the good in school, so I have to be, like, a garbage man or something. So, but, uh, you know, that's totally bullshit. So, um, I mean, for the most case. But the thing that was interesting about Cooper was how brilliant he was at conspiracy, if you want to talk about conspiracy. I mean, he was just so far ahead of the curve about conspiracy. Like, if you go back to the really the first, the very first Internet-driven conspiracy theory was the nine eleven stuff. That was the first... Huge, internet conspiracy, internet. Because the Kennedy stuff was all, you know, people like Paul krasner writing books and stuff like that, and and there were lectures. There was this woman named May Brussel who may you may or may not have heard of, but she was a, she was a big time person, and she would come out and she she was made all kinds of accusations about these people are all CIA agents, you know, and after. But when she called I. F. stone, who was this famous journalist and a CIA agent, a lot of people left, you know, <laughs> that was too far. But I mean, once it became on the Internet, then you got 9-11, right? And if you really go back and look at this, in fact, you can go back and look at a piece I wrote in New York magazine in 2004 about this kind of stuff. That the, the 9-11, the nine eleven truth movement doesn't really get started in any kind of um meaningful way until around 2004 that's already like a long time three years after and um i mean if you want to compare that to the uh, to the to the covid covid thing which is really i think this is the this might be the ultimate showdown you know the code the covid thing between the This this so-called rationalist and the so-called irrationalist, um, whatever it is, because it's really not about right wing or left wing. It's really a different thing. So, um, but Bill Cooper, Bill Cooper had had sponsored this book about the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, it's this big, thick book, which I happen to have a copy of, and I may be the only one, because <laughs> it's really very hard to find. And he spent, the, he put the book out himself, and he had this woman who was on the scene, who was like one of his, you know, he had he actually had his own army. She was like a lieutenant colonel in his army, <laughs> you know, and um and I had a lot of memorabilia about the Cooper thing stuff like that. His 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 intelligence service and stuff like that. This is a People's Intelligence Service. And you sign you, you it would be just like a comic book thing. You you did send in some money and he would send you back a membership card, you know, signed by Bill Cooper and everything. So I like this kind of insanity. So in any event, he wrote this book and he more or less meditated on this idea. Uh, immediately throws out the the timothy mcveigh idea you know because he learned from the oswald thing that what they say can't be true so all right so that's that's where you're starting from what they say can't be the real story so even though mcveigh is more than happy to tell you that he did it you know (laughs) cooper doesn't go for this so um uh and he runs through all these different theorems about how you can bring down a building like that. You know, all the thermite, all this stuff that later popped up like 10 years later in the conspiracy stuff about 2000, about, about what happened in the World Trade Center. Cooper's already dealing with it. So if you go back and listen to Cooper's broadcasts, this really what this is the, the, the six or eight weeks that cemented Bill Cooper's legend. On the day of uh, sometime in June of two thousand and one, Cooper is on the radio, and he's complaining about something I don't know. Yeah. So and, and he and just in the middle he says, "I've been watching it on CNN. I mean, you know, um, they sent this guy in like a John Miller who used to be. Remember you know John Miller? So John Miller's working for CNN. He got in somehow to see well, Os- Osama bin Laden and did an interview with them, right? So." And Cooper's on this long rant about how, you know, this bozo with a with a with a, a camera crew that he can find Osama bin Laden, but the whole CIA can't find them. I mean, you know, what is this? I mean, you know, a, a good a hard to, hard to, dis, to, to dispute this, right? So you, know, so, you know, so that that's so he says that, and then he says, "Look, I'm telling you," because what he really knew about. Was conspiracy, alternative thinking. That's what he knew better than anybody else and still now is un, un, unsurpassed. So um, he said, I'm going to tell you that something really bad is going to happen in this country and they're going to blame it on Osama bin Laden. That's what he said. And this was picked up later, you know, by the Bill Cooper, you know, long after he's dead, but as, as Bill Cooper predicted 9 11. Now, he didn't really predict 9-11, but he did do what a conspiracy theorist does. Something bad's going to happen. You know who's going to do it because it's going to be them. But who's going to get the blame? That's the most important thing. So just like Lee Harvey Oswald got the blame, just like Timothy Coo, Timothy McVeigh got the blame. Somebody's going to get the blame, you know? So... What he's thinking is, like, Osama bin Laden is the obvious guy. He's going to get the blame. And he knew this two and a half months before the incident, right? So then the thing happens, and Cooper is on the radio all day long watching different feeds he had. He had the BBC, and he had the you know the, all the networks and stuff like that. And he's just talking about it. And the news is coming out, and he's telling you it was obviously a controlled experiment, a controlled demolition. Every single talking point that later came out in that movie, Loose Change, Bill Cooper is talking about it in real time as it's happening. He's telling you he's reciting the, the tenets of the conspiracy Whatever you want to call it—conspiracy or reality, whatever it is—that particular version of events is coming out of Bill Cooper's mouth just because he knows this material so well that he can tell you how it's going to go. And it took like about three years for it all to filter down. And um, I don't know if you remember this because you're probably too young, but they used to this the first the 9/11 Truth movement started in the tr- in the basement of the of the church on Saint Mark's Place. You're in chain, St. Mark's—it's like right about you know four or five blocks from you Yeah, yeah. You no, know, that on, on 10th Street and Second Avenue, the old church there. There was a meeting in the basement, and one of the pastors, a guy named Frank—I can't remember his last name—he was running this thing called, you know, 9/11 Truth. Nobody else was doing it, and they—that's where almost all the basic tenets of what became the 9/11 Truth agenda mantra, whatever you want to call it. Was was developed. I mean, it was interesting to see how this stuff happens because it doesn't come out of the blue, especially because the internet was not as dominant as it is now. Um, at that time, you know, there were other sources of <laughs> where you might get some information. You know, so um, the uh, so then after that, but I mean, it was always and then and after loose change comes out, and it was only later on when I started doing the book, I see like you know, Cooper had the whole thing. I mean, he had almost every single one of these things just off the top of his head. So that to me makes him the greatest con- single conspiracy theorist of all time. Cause he just understood the material. <laughs> you know? he, under- he was, a, he was, he was a deep understanding of, of what the official story is going to be and what, and what the counter story should be. and, and I, you know, that you got to give it to him for that. And then, after he does this, even after uh, nobody really catches on to this because you can't do it like it only can happen, you know, in retrospect. Six weeks later, he gets he gets killed, you know, in front of his house because he predicted they're going to come up here. This is how he gets to be the prophet, right? He gets to be the prophet because he says they're going to come up here one night at midnight and shoot me dead on my front porch. Which is exactly what happened <laughs> so, you know, it's not the I mean most people that you that bill Cooper fans are completely convinced that it was the federal government that killed him and everything like that. that's not the case that is just and you know it's just not what happened so you know he pissed off somebody a big wig in the town and uh, who was his doctor of a famous mormon family and it was just because the guy went up on his on what cooper believed to be his property, but it was not really his property. And Cooper chased this guy off with a gun. And this guy is, a is, um, his name is uh, Scott uh, Hamlin. I mean, this is the Hamlins. There are two, this is a small town, um, Eager out Arizona. And there are two streets named after the Hamlins. I mean, you know, it's just, they. that's their spot, right? So there was no way that Cooper was going to get away with that. And, um, it's a long story but in any event the local police people felt it was there i you know it was like a big publicity stunt they're going to take out bill cooper you know and um and cooper did shoot somebody in the head and the guy is still paralyzed so that usually gets left out of the legend but uh, you know i mean the way i feel about it is the book didn't do that well and I understand why I didn't do too well, because I, um, as somebody who's uh, been writing for a really long time, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, most of my liberal friends, the people I that I know in New York, you know, they didn't want to read that book because they thought it was a pro-Trump book. You know, they thought it was a pro-Trump book, which, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, not my thing. So, um, and then the... Um, and then the Cooper fans just immediately assume that it's all bullshit because it wasn't written by one of them. So, you know, I must be trying to besmirch Bill Cooper's reputation. But actually, I mean, I don't know. You tell me. I thought it was pretty fair to the guy, you know. So um,
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, in some ways, obviously, it's uh... – you know, you as I understand it, you began the project sort of before, you know, well before the Trump phenomenon began, and um That's true. So, so in some ways, it really did. Uh, I mean, it. You know, it, in my opinion, it was a, it was a great book to read, kind of in the midst of all of that. I um, mean, you know, as as things like Q were emerging, and yeah. you know, it because it because it takes us to some of the roots, and um, you know, kind of thinks about how this particular figure has impacted the culture more broadly. But, you know, I, I think, you know, in in relation to what you said about your liberal friends, I mean, part of the problem is that, um, you know, basically it attempts to be um, generous and sympathetic to this, this type of figure and, and think about, you know, why, why someone like that would um, come to these types of conclusions and you know, what, what, what grains of truth there might be in them. And that I think under the, I mean, as somebody who's also written about, um, you know, kind of weird subcultures and conspiracy communities, um, you know, there's sort of a, that, that it, it became something that um, was, was regarded as so dangerous by the sort of average new york times reader that you know giving it I mean doing anything other than just kind of denouncing it was um
1: i, I feel was, that, was that goes back as, to, as, it goes uh, back to the first amendment i mean you know yeah. it really does i mean you know the things of self-censorship is one of the worst kinds of censorship so uh, you know i mean i felt that it was my duty as a journalist to uh report on what actually was you know i don't know how i mean i'm glad you like the book but i don't know how well how well i did it but the thing is that um uh, you know, this was a legitimate point of view. And even if you didn't agree with it, it was a legitimate point of view. I mean, come on. I mean, you can't go around thinking that 73 million people who, for some reason, I can't quite understand, voted for Donald Trump, voted for Donald Trump. So, um, you know, you can't just say that those people were all crazy. And um, And somebody like Bill Cooper, who really is a I mean, I was a, he was a very forward thinker in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, the fact that that kind of person is not, I mean, I wanted to do an intellectual biography of William Cooper, somebody who, who was an anti-intellectual. So that's what I set out to do. And, uh, you know, I tried to do it. And it was like all kinds of crazy stuff kept coming up. I mean, I didn't know anything about this stuff when they first, I mean, I originally thought do an, I'll do it. I'll do a magazine article about for rolling stone or something like that you know but it kept on getting bigger and bigger so you know i wrote a book about it but i mean it's just fascinating and the fact that he's still so popular i have this um instagram account which i would be happy to tell your listeners uh it's called pale horse rider book it's an instagram thing and you know it it deals with these issues even now I, i try to you know um just put up Cooper stuff or like stuff I think might be related on some level. And um, it's kind of amazing. Like if I put up anything, which is right, right in the wheelhouse of of several of my really bizarro followers, um, (laughs) you know, it gets hundreds of likes, you know, but if I put up something like, you know, that's a little, even slightly off the target, it's just, nobody pays any attention whatsoever. So to me, that's very depressing, <laughs> so, because, I mean, you got the idea of fix A, and you're not going past that, which is really too bad, and it, and it's on both sides, so I find that the world has been a very boring place over the past few years, and I'm hoping things change.
0: Yeah, fully agreed. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's been something, um, yeah, just a, a, a general tedium that, you know, I hope in this you know this podcast in a small way is sort of trying to uh, put out feelers to what you know alternative
1: what, what other things have what other things have you done
0: i mean a uh, a good array of things i mean i'm interested in kind of the weirder and less predictable corners of internet culture um yeah. you know just as an example i have a, a an episode with a guy who um who just analyzes memes and right. analyzes them in this very out there kind of almost psychoanalytic sort of Jungian way um, oh, as, as sort of, manifestations, like of the, <laughs> manifestations of the collective unconscious um, or something like that as it's, you yeah. know, as the internet is, is oh. helping it evolve. And then, um, you know, some things about, I mean, I, I had Jesse Walker on to talk about Conspiracy yeah no. stuff and, yeah 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 no, no. you know that's another another book I like quite a lot is his united States of paranoia mm-hmm. um so you know it's been a a a range of a range of of subjects but you know i so i think the on one hand the internet has been um has been you know sort of bad for the life of the mind but in these sort of small marginal spaces it's it's actually producing some interesting stuff but um,
1: the thing is like i'm somebody because of my age like it's kind of a schizophrenic thing because like you know i was brought up before they invented the internet (laughs) i mean i basically came to uh you know i was i was working for the village voice for like 10 years you know i mean they didn't have the internet you know so um uh, you know and now that it's been a real sea change I mean really like I, I'm I, I completely believe that it rewires that it i'm 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 conspiratorial enough to believe that the internet itself is actually actively rewiring people's brains you know <laughs> that there's no doubt about it to me. And somehow they forgot the sense of humor thing. Why did they cut that out? Mm -hmm. Why is that good for the people that are running the the, the they that nobody has a sense of humor? Because that must be, that must be some, some counter-revolutionary kind of whatever thing. If you can make a joke about something somehow, there's a little bit of levity in there that allows a little bit of humanity to kind of worm its way into like these, these kind of steel plated arguments that people shout at each other, you know, I mean, I wish, I wish they just had, would you know, I'm going to, I'm going to appeal to the great algorithm in the sky to ask them to uh, put a little more jokes in it. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, something I talked to um, Jesse Walker about was, which, which comes up in this book as a, a sort of um, one of these phenomena that Cooper converges with and diverges with it. A few points is um, this whole Operation Mindfuck, Um, you know, the Robert Anton Wilson and um, that you have the and the the discordians and that, you know, basically you have this kind of version of 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 conspiracy and beginning in the 60s that that has Mm -hmm. this odd sort of humorous um, playful bent.
1: That's because they're um, massive, That's a- why.
0: That's that, right. 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 And so it's it's a kind of um, but it's it's a very strange story because you know with someone like Carrie Thornley who's one of the founders of Discordianism you know he starts out as kind of, an, of an an ironic you know his his version of conspiracy is sort of this um, this kind of entirely ludic um, sort of mind expanding game but then he eventually himself becomes a kind of true believer.
1: I, I think it's inevitable. I mean, just the, the, the whole Illuminatus trilogy, that thousand-page book that um, uh, Robert Anton Wilson produced with his buddy Robert Shea. that's um, of a joke. It's a parody. But it's like, since people don't understand that kind of thing, they just pick it as full cloth, you know, because you're looking for some kind of theory. So this is a perfectly good place to glom these different details from because, you know, that. And that game? Do you ever see the game, the the Illuminati's uh, game?
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. It's definitely sort of interesting to look at. It was a market. It's like a monopoly game uh, back yeah. the Illuminati. But it came out so early that people didn't really pay attention to it. It was before the curve.
0: Yeah. So, and then that that sort of anticipates. I mean, <laughs> you know, what, one of the more interesting analyses of the whole Q phenomenon is that it you know it's it's experienced as a kind of role play or that that people um yeah, you know definitely. it's it's a kind of massive participation game and so at least not that people necessarily explicitly conceive of their participation in that way but that it the way that they engage with it is is very it's, similar that's, that's, that-
1: that's a completely new role play is something that didn't come up in my youth as a new york city public school hipster kind of like going to Greenwich Village and listening to Bob Dylan childhood, you know, that, that is a new thing. And uh, I don't really quite understand it that much, but I believe what you're saying is true, you know? So, I mean, it's just interesting to, uh, you know, the fact that also the fact that that conspiracy in general moved from the left to the right, which many people have pointed out is, 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 you know, it's just interesting to see how that kind of stuff happens because um what you have to do is i think what you want to do the first thing i would do to do something really kind of uh meaningful to to break down the current uh bilateralism of it all is you 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 take that that richard hopstetter book right the paranoid style of american politics and you take that out of the library for a while i'm not advertising i'm not i'm not for book burning you know (laughs) But, but, but i mean the idea that book is so quoted and so taken as, as the liberal gospel um, and it was written during the McCarthy period. So it, it really doesn't have anything to do with today. But that's those old structures of like who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. I mean, if you listen to the Republican Party, you're basically hearing what the John Birch Society was telling, telling a while ago. Right. I mean, the the anti-vaccination thing you know it's not that different than the fluoride in the water you know so like and i understand like why people don't want to put stuff in their body that isn't there to begin with i mean it doesn't explain why why they can drink like nine bottles of coca-cola something like that but you know life is very complicated you can't, you can't really figure that out but i don't know i mean uh I'm hoping that I'm, I'm optimistic that things are going to get better. I really am. I really am. Because people are too smart to put up with this crap anymore. Yeah. I really do. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I hope you're right. Um, I, you know, just a, a sort of thing that relates to this left and right um, ambiguity and the, you know, the way that Cooper, um, you know, I think on one hand is sort of, I, I suppose it would be coded as as right wing in various ways.
1: Um, well, I mean, he was right wing. I mean, right. the, the longer it went on, the more right wing he got, yeah. you know, but the gun thing, gun thing is a big deal for him. But I mean, that's yeah. me. That's not a political issue. I mean, if you live in the West, you're like to have guns. If you live in yeah. the East, you don't want to have guns. So yeah. Yeah, people yeah. don't get that. They don't get the thing about, you know, for some reason, liberals can't understand that east of the Mississippi river only 4% of the land is owned by the federal government. West of the Mississippi River, it's more like over 50. And in some states, the federal government owns um, upwards of 80 or 90% of the land and therefore carries much more power than it does in in, in a place like Connecticut. So, um, you know, so you can't really, so most liberal-minded people who are looking at this kind of like Control mechanism of the of the federal government, you know, just the government, the government. I mean, they're thinking of it um, as George Wallace standing in the way of the door. I mean, that image people are not even. You know, I'm sure you, if you went around and asked half the people at NYU, they probably wouldn't even know who George Wallace was. But um, you know. That business of the federal troops going down there to enforce, like, you know, the rights of black people and this racist nut standing in the middle of the of, and refusing to let them in. That is where most older people, old, older liberal get get their idea of like the dichotomy between state and lo, state and local government. But, you know, when Donald Trump was the president, you know, and even now, I, I'm totally I'm a devoted states writer. I mean, if I feel the federal government is not on my side, I mean, you know, there is another government that I can believe in, like the state, the state government. I mean, you know, and you see what's happening in places like Texas and stuff like that, where that 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 um, you know, those kind of those kind of other governments, you know, are. I mean, it's mostly based on these guys trying to run for president in two thousand and twenty-four, but you know, it, it's it's still an alternative. People don't want to get rid of government completely they just want to get rid of government that they feel is gonna is not the one they like so um because anarchism is not going to play in this country believe me <laughs> You know, i mean they, that's just not going to happen so um you know could you imagine, so- <laughs> <Did> you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> you imagine what that might be like. I mean, come on. I mean, I don't like the cops, but I mean, you know, I'm glad they're there. <laughs> well, I guess
0: we had that, you know, the Seattle uh, autonomous zone last year, which didn't well, turn out too well.
1: But... No, I mean, you know, so what do yeah. they do there? They just they just laid around and smoke pot. I mean, yeah. you know, that's okay. I mean, I'm a pothead myself, but the thing is that, um, you know, you've got to, you just got to get past that. You know. Although I am interested in this uh, Chinese lying flat movement. Do you know about that? No, actually. Oh, you should check it out. It's like these different young people in China. See, the government, the CCP won't allow any news out, but actually a lot of interesting things happen to be happening there, you know, that they'll never, ever make the Western press. And um, so there's an enormous movement of people that just won't go for it. They decide that I'm not going to work. I'm not, certainly not going to work nine hours a day, six days a week, just to enrich somebody else. I'm not going to do it. They're all hippies all of a sudden. And they have this movement called lying flat. They just stay home and read books and talk on the phone. That's what they do. So, And and it's a totally revolutionary movement as far as I can see. You know, it's like, uh, well, I'm all for that. I mean, why, why should you work? I mean, and, and you're seeing it here. You're seeing it here. I mean, all these all these problems, I mean, you know, all this supply chain stuff that they keep talking about. It's it, it, in, in part, it's about people don't want to go back to work. They've got the pandemic showed them like, you know, fuck this. You know, I don't want to do that. I mean, I got I got one life to live and it's certainly not going to be spent, you know, living in fear. I'm going to lose my job. I mean, because, like you know, that's the big conspiracy that's the conspiracy, <laughs> you know, that's a real conspiracy you can get behind, you know, that, that they got together and they invented a thing called work and then like, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, I, I think that they're going to be big changes soon because everything has reached a certain kind of uh end point because it's not worth talking about anymore, at least as a way it seems to me.
0: Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, it's I know I've noticed it all year in terms of places being understaffed and just this kind of
1: yeah, you know, and, you that, know, that, that, all these places to, struggling mean,
0: yeah. to hire people, and it's like something is going on, kind of somewhat under the radar there that that I don't think is being fully understood. But, well,
1: that's a, that's the last thing you'll ever hear about in this country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm doing a story, I'm doing a piece now about the founding of behavioral psychology. That's John B. Watson. You familiar with this person?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So like, um, you know, at one point, uh, I don't want to go off the topic or make your show be too long, but the basic idea when, when psychology, the science of the mind came online in the beginning of the 20th century. And, um, you know, everybody was, there's a lot of reasons why this happened. It goes way beyond Darwin and everything like that. Once you take God out of the equation, you got to replace it with a lot of other stuff. So, um, you know, uh, you will not replace me, God said, but they replaced them anyhow. So, um, the, uh, so the, the idea of psychology and what it was going to be like, the study, the science of the mind and what it was going to be like in America was very up for grabs. I mean, there was like William James, who was like a supporter of the Freudian idea of sort. He was more like what they call a functionalist or something. More practical. I mean, Amer- American stuff is always going to be more practical. Then this kind of gooey, they hated the European stuff because, you know, too sexy, too Jewish, <laughs> too 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 kind of like, you know, you're know, not supposed to be sitting around thinking in America. You're supposed to be doing stuff, right? So, like, um, so John B. Watson came up with the idea of behavioral psychology, which basically is about predicting and controlling human behavior. And B. F. Skinner took it to the next level, but Watson was really the first person to do it. And um, that was became the government religion or the not the the corporate government whatever you want to call it i mean the the businessman religion on psychology which basically is aimed towards uh efficiency and productivity as opposed to sitting around doing nothing supposedly you know so so you know it just but it all fits together you i mean you can really feel it you know with this with this idea of like people are just no, I'm just going to say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, you know, whatever happens, happens. Uh, the, you tricked me on this bullshit college loan thing. You know, I, I fell for that, but I'm not going to fall for that. You know, said, there's a limit, you know? you know, there's a limit, you know, before it's, people really actually, actually, you know, get their up enough and just go like, well, I'm not going with the program.
0: This sort of makes me think of this. Um, You know, Cooper had this text: uh, "Silent weapons for quiet wars."
1: That's the masterpiece, and,
0: and that's <laughs> you know, kind of yeah, one of his great. And you know, I, I as I was thinking about this, I think he didn't know,
1: write it; he just picked it up. Right, right, right.
0: Well, it has this weird story of its genesis, right? the oh,
1: um, story of its genesis yeah. is fantastic because I did yeah, a lot of yeah. research. I did a lot yeah. of research on that because I realized that this is the main thing that he's got to say. I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's all these other. Direct in there, but I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, the 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 life, the story of these kind of things. Like, do you know that the the report from Iron Mountain? You know the story about that one. There's a big conspiracy document, but it was actually written by Victor Navasky and John Kenneth Galbraith, <laughs> right, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> and they tried to like you know tell me it was just a parody and nobody believes him right? Because this guy Louis Carto who was the uh, Liberty Lobby guy, he just took it out and put it out. And and then people said, yeah, that's right. (laughs) So, you know, the um, so what were we talking about? I mean, the thing
0: I was I was interested in, like, the silent weapons for quiet wars, as you know, I'm I'm always interested in this. I mean, it's a relatively familiar idea, but, you know, the one way of thinking about the rise of conspiracy is this this kind of pop critique of ideology or something like that, that, you know, what he's doing there is trying to understand how you know something like what Chomsky would call you know manufacturing consent or yeah no I various mean, I other like, kinds of left theorists you know we're trying to make sense of in the post-war era in terms of how you know how populations are managed through you know things like behavioral psychology but also through you know p- more subtle forms of propaganda um, exactly. and mass media. So
1: actually, with the, somebody sent me an email the other day. In which Chomsky actually uses the phrase "silent as silent weapons." <laughs> yes. you, you know. Yeah. I mean, like you know, Noam you pop, yeah, I feel like see, and he's one of these kind of people that would always like say, "What are you wasting your time writing a book about this stupid guy?" And I said, "It's important, man. Leave me alone." So, like, um, and then he said, "Well, and so now we are, Noam Chomsky used that phrase, so now it seems like it's okay, right?" But, but, but you're right. I mean, the, the, that. The silent weapons, and one of the things that's interesting about silent weapons that really does ring true is that, like, what you want to do is just raise the pressure on people just a little bit because they said, and it says it in there, like, uh, raising the price of gas, which is one of the few products in American society that goes up and down in price. And just when you're driving by, you see the price there. You know, it's like you have to usually you have to walk into the store and it takes forever to find out what it costs, you know, because they either don't market or it's like somewhere in the bottom or something. When you drive past a gas station, it's right there in bright lights how much it costs. So, you know, you can't avoid the shifting prices of it. So if gas prices are low, people are in a good, better mood than they are when they're high. So if you just raise the price of gas, it's going to. People will bitch about that, but it actually will affect almost everything else in the, in the, in the way they think about the world. That somehow, if they're paying four cents more at the at the pump for gas, that's gonna that's gonna wreck their day, <laughs> you know. And really, when it comes down to it, what is it? I mean, if it's like went up a nickel, and you get ten gallons, so it costs you fifty extra cents. So I mean, but it's psychological in this kind of interesting way. And that's right there in silent weapons. And I thought that was, you know, it's, it's definitely true. And the, and the whole, as you're talking about the cosmology of the event of the, of, of the, how these things come around, but I mean, it's the same ideas, the golden plates. That's it's all the same. I mean, almost, you know, about the Urantia book. You ever heard that? No. Oh, you should definitely you know, who, you, ever, yeah. you, know you, ever, you ever run across a guy named Lenny Flatley? he He's got this podcast called uh Failed State. Look it up. I mean, he wrote a whole he just wrote recently wrote a whole book about a Urantia cult. So the Urantia cult is just like the Mormons more or less except instead of the Angel Moroni, you know, leading Joseph Smith to the place where these so-called golden plates. And I have no problem with any of that because you got to start a religion somehow, you know. And and the, the Mormon religion is the first religion. That actually started in America. And and they've been very successful. <laughs> so, you know? so uh, but the orancha thing was another one of these kind of things where, you know, this, this version of the Bible that was written in outer space by aliens is somehow picked up and becomes the book, you know. I suppose, you know, the, bi- the, the Outer Space Bible, whatever it is. And, you know, actually Merle Haggard, the country singer, was a big Uranium follower, which <laughs> I found to be interesting. But, um, the uh, you know, the, so the, the idea that Silent Weapons tied to Wars comes from, like, you know, some, IB, it was an IBF, IBM copier that was bought at a surplus sale. Somehow somebody forgot to take this thing out. I mean, that's great. I mean, it's just myth-making at a, at, at, at a, at a high level, I think. So, and, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. I mean, browbeating you with these idiotic facts that aren't even facts is not interesting. This kind of stuff is interesting. So, you know, I don't know. That's why I say, like, I wish conspiracy would just go away because it's reached a low ebb, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you know again there's kind of a a way that the um the shift in the well i mean i, I think you know another theme of cooper's work is the way that um you know he i mean this, his whole pivot away from ufos right where yeah i mean it's almost like a sort of copernican shift or something where, you know, the thing that was the subject of the cover up turns about out to be something like the means of the cover up, right? Where oh, you know, the UFO was supposed to be the thing that was being concealed. But in fact, it's the thing that's being revealed. So as not to reveal something else.
1: I know I was I was on a, uh, you know, like, I don't know. Since I wrote this book, I'm on all <laughs> people like you call me up all the time. So like, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to be called. So like, um we did a we did a show about the big reveal, you know. The most recent, uh, they, I mean, they said exactly what they always say, <laughs> you know, which is nothing. And then it began. Parent, it began to dawn on me that it makes sense. Rather than them trying to cover up, the whole thing up, they just don't know. <laughs> they don't know. That's why they can't tell you anything. I mean. They can make something up, which is probably what they should do, you know, but it's, you know, it's just better the way it is, you know, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that they just don't know, you know, that's not an acceptable answer for most people, but, you know, anyhow, so it's like so- the assassination. I mean,
0: right.
1: you know, it's kind of great when you really get down to it in a cosmic sense that the, that the crime of the century that happened in broad daylight in front of like hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. And uh, even though people believe they watch it on TV, they didn't because it was not televised, Um, you know, uh, somehow is an unsolved murder. When and on every single law and order episode, they can solve the murder in like, you know, 40 minutes. But this is like unsolved. So I like that. I mean, it, it leaves a little mystery to the world. And, you know, mystery makes people think. know, that's why people read mystery novels, because, you know, somebody is actually trying to figure out who did it. And um, and they're going to be right. That's good. And, um, you know, certainty is like a disaster. Especially for people who don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you know, I mean, they don't know anything. You know, the seventeen-year-old guy on on, an inter, on the internet, you know, who saw a loose change or maybe, uh, you know, read something else on the internet. I mean, this is not a good authority. You know, people won't accept that. You know, it's like the idea of like we got to we got to elect non-politicians because somehow they're going to be better. <laughs> You know, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, never did the job before. Would you hire that person to be your, uh, do anything? You know, would you hire a guy who didn't know how to drive to be a driver? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's stupid, man, but people have all kinds of crazy ideas because I mean, society is in crisis. Um, I mean, I guess my last word on this is I think we're living in a period of, um, there was a guy named Weston Labar, he wrote a book about the ghost dance. Remember this? You're familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. phenomenon? Um, so he said that what the American Indians were, um, what the Native Americans were, see there was now indigenous people's day, you know, instead of Columbus day. Well, that, that'll make them happier. Yeah. I'm sure somebody came and stole the land, but now they have indigenous people. Day. that should make it okay. So like um, the, uh, he said that it was a crisis cult. That, like, during the period of time of crisis, people tend to come up with ideas that don't make any sense, um, but their last straw ideas, you know. I mean, in fact, almost, if you read the Bible, almost every single one of those prophets, from Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, every one of them, was almost all their stuff was written and created during the Babylonian captivity which is when the Jews were taken out of, uh, you know, their supposed homeland in Israel and, and became Babylonian, you know, serfs of the Babylonian system because they didn't use to just bomb me into existence. They took the smart people and got them to work for you. you know, so like, um, and that was, this exile was just a nightmare. So they wrote a lot of the, you know, that was what it was about. We need a Messiah to lead us back to uh, whatever. And, um, This kind of conspiracy thing, I think a lot of people, especially people of the Proud Boy phenomena, you know, those kind of people, I mean, not the Proud Boy, they're just a bunch of young guys that want to fucking mix it up, you know, that's different. But those people that are very nervous about being replaced in a country that, you know, used to be 100 percent white or something like that. um, I mean, it's a crisis. Things are different. You know, you turn on TV there's a lot of black people on there now, you know, I'm, in fact, there's so many black people on TV. I think they're like, you know, the country must be like 50 percent black, but actually it's still only 13 percent black. So it's another one of these illusions, you know. So um, I'm not against it, but I mean, it's an illusion. It's not true that that guys want to watch a football game and. The guys in their in their in their uh, living room sitting there rooting for the whatever team it is, There's one Chinese guy, one black guy, one American Indian, one Native American and one white guy. This just doesn't happen in real life, you know. So, um, you know, so it's another illusion that's I think people react very unfavorably to because it's not true and they don't like those people anyhow. So, you know, and then what are you going to do about it? I mean, you gotta keep watching television, you go out of your mind if you don't watch television. So it creates an enormous amount of resentment, which doesn't have that many outlets in the society. So believing in like stuff that like like I don't know, you know, <laughs> believing that Donald Donald Trump. I mean I mean the thing about Donald Trump is like, you know, anybody who's whose main advisor was Roy Cohn, I mean if <laughs> you feel like he's probably a bad guy so like you know um but uh you know it's just that people get upset and they don't know how to be upset and they don't want to beat their wife or you know some do i mean whatever i mean but uh you know it's just a a release and i can appreciate it that way but i mean if it's gonna start affecting my life i'm not gonna like that so you know that's basically all i got to say yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: well, we can leave it there. Uh I appreciate your taking the time.
1: I hope I didn't do uh too much blabbing here, but no, that, not at all. That's what I that's, that's what I do.
0: Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. And um again, the book is Pale Horse Rider. The author is Mark Jacobson. Um, check it out, everyone. Am I right there's a paperback coming out or
1: well there's well no, unfortunately that... and I'm I'm more than happy to tell your listeners this. I mean the uh the publishing company uh Rand, Pend, penguin random house remember that you know people might have heard of it um they they uh believe that um it's not a good business move to put out a paperback even though they contracted to do that and uh, i'm really more than happy to tell everybody who's a bill cooper fan that they're doing it to persecute me personally yeah. <laughs> you know i try to suppress this knowledge yeah. which yeah, they may is. actually be trying to do but um you know but they uh, you know there 's a paper shortage, all kinds of stuff, you know, so like whatever, but a book is currently gonna get published in paperback by an unknown publisher, so i 'm working on it right now, so you can look, look for it for Look out for that, yeah. but you can see you 're looking at the ebook on amazon if yeah. you're, you're read ebooks you know
0: yeah, great well, i again. I'm grateful for the conversation, really enjoyed the book, recommend it to everybody and also recommend, as you said, that they uh, tune into some of Cooper's old broadcasts, which are highly entertaining. <laughs> and,
1: uh, yes, definitely. There are some really, you know, if, if anybody wants to get in touch with me on, uh, on the Instagram's account, yeah. I, I, there are certain ones, there are hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds, but there are certain ones that are actually really good. And I happen to have a few, pig pig hits so Excellent. Anyway. all right all right
0: cool. thanks so much
1: all right bye-bye man